0: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time.
1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is John Brown, perhaps better known as Lord Brown or Sir John Brown. He is the former CEO of BP and the author of numerous fascinating books. He is incredibly forthright and straightforward. Without any hesitation, he discusses all sorts of really fascinating things from engineering to his personal life to BP and the impact of hydrocarbons on the environment. If you're interested in what it's like to run a company, uh, what it's like to lead a double life, what it's like to be at the vanguard of engineering, then you're going to find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my interview of Sir John Brown. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is the Right Honorable Lord Brown of Mattingly, better known as John Brown. He was the CEO of British Petroleum from 1995 to 2007. He is also the former president of the Royal Academy of Engineering. Uh, Since 2001, he has been a member of the House of Lords. He is the author of five books, most recently, Make, Think, Imagine, Engineering the Future of Civilization. John Brown, welcome to Bloomberg. Very good to be here. So you have a fascinating background and, and quite an interesting career but I have to go back to your education. You, you earn a degree in physics at Cambridge, and then you get a MS degree in business at Stanford. What was it like going from the UK to California? That must have been a little bit of a culture shock.
2: It was uh, very different. Uh, I, uh, I found the whole—it uh, was 10 years after I graduated from Cambridge, I went to Stanford. Uh, and I went to Stanford because everybody said, don't go to Harvard. It's just a pale shadow of what Cambridge actually is, founded by someone who graduated from Cambridge. So go somewhere. 500 years ago. Right. Uh, They have very short uh, memory, long memories, I should say. So I went to Stanford, and of Mm. course, I found a a completely different set of people, a very great set of people, entrepreneurs even then. This was Mm -hmm. in the late 70s, early 80s. And they were fascinating, and the teaching was interesting. Uh, the leading edge thinking was interesting, and the quality of people, both the students and faculty,
1: uh, was something you couldn't see elsewhere. I don't think. So I'm gonna I'm gonna cross Harvard off my list. Second tier school, Cambridge and Stanford. That's where we're gonna send the kids. Uh, so you you graduate, you literally join BP as an apprentice while mm-hmm. at university, mm-hmm. and you remain with the firm your entire career. That that's fairly. Unusual these days. Tell us about having a career with a single company.
2: Well, in those days, it wasn't that unusual, mm-hmm. I have to say. I joined, uh, I technically joined BP in 1966, mm-hmm. the day I went up to Cambridge University. They helped pay for my studies, which was very important. Uh, in fact, I paid for myself entirely. Uh, from the age of 18 for everything I did, Mm -hmm. by winning a couple of scholarships to uh, Cambridge, one which was involving uh, the cross-disciplinary approach. If you were a scientist, you had to write a thesis on something to do with arts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I wrote a thesis about Iran, where I had lived, uh, the Safavid architecture of Isfahan. So I won a lot of money, and that kept me going through university. But I joined, and uh, about every year, I thought I'd leave. And uh, so I'd you know, be offered jobs, and somehow BP offered me a better job. Uh, and every time I was thinking of going, I had a bigger and bigger challenge. So I, I went to Alaska in 1969 because I'd asked to go to the United States. Alaska was not quite what I had in mind, uh, but I found <laughs> right. myself... Uh, working 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle, near Point Barrow, uh, on the testing oil wells, uh, which turned out to be the Prudhoe Bay oil field, one of the greatest oil fields ever discovered in North America. So that's what I did, and, uh, and up from field work, it graduated. One day, My I was about to leave, my boss came in and said... Um, would you like to come to New York with me? I said, when do we pack? Yeah, right. uh, and uh, off I went to New York and lived here for four years, and life carried on from there.
1: Our weather in New York is not great, but it's certainly better than, than the Arctic Circle. You you mentioned uh, the work you did in Iran. I'm reminded of of some of your travels in your book, Beyond Business, where you describe meeting some of the world's, let's call them most colorful despots, Colonel Gaddafi in Libya, Vladimir Putin at his country Dhaka, Venezuelan leader Hugo Chavez, as well as uh, communist desp- despots in Kazakhstan and secret meetings with Russian oligarchs. <clears throat> the obvious question is why this motley crew, but I think we all know the answer. They seem to be where the oil is.
2: Correct. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, it's a uh, I think someone said once that God had played a, a joke on people and put the oil in places where people didn't want to go. Uh, we can't find oil under London. It's probably a very good thing. We'd, we'd never be allowed right. to produce it or, or in New York. Uh, you can find oil in California and it's very difficult
1: to develop and produce. There's plenty of oil in the North Sea, so you have That's access true. not too far from but London.
2: Not, uh, but not enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very important discovery, the North Sea, both in the UK and Norway. And it's still producing quite a mm-hmm. lot of oil and gas. But there's more oil and gas outside of those areas. And, and in those days, of course, the Permian, the Permian Basin was a place which was declining. I went there for field training when it was sort of on decline and you were taught how to save one cent because that made all the difference to the profitability of a well. So it really taught you the basics of activity. Now, of course, it's a tremendous place where everybody wants to invest and growing uh, like gangbusters.
1: And and that's strictly because of the new technology of fracking and the ability to take what was previously not productive fields and turn them to... Giant windfalls.
2: So it it was a way of releasing what uh, geology put in place, what history put in place that mm-hmm. couldn't flow naturally. So this is so called hydraulic fracking, hydraulic fracturing, uh, a technique which I may say was invented by one of the uh, companies in the BP group uh-huh. uh, in nineteen forty eight by Amoco, the uh, the Standard Oil of Indiana, which is part of BP. Right. Uh, and uh, so it's uh, it's a very uh, a very. Uh, the lightly used activity until suddenly the Permian appeared and when it was became a very heavily used and quite controversial technique.
1: Mm-hmm. So one of the things you mentioned in in I believe it was Beyond Business, uh, Vladimir Putin was one of the few people you said you were determined to say goodbye to before leaving BP. Mm-hmm. Why is that?
2: Well, I think I'd, uh, whether this is the Stockholm Syndrome working, I'm not sure, but I'd spent (laughs) so much time with him. uh, Recall that uh, I pulled together a a big deal in uh, Russia Mm -hmm. called TNKBP, and we were the biggest foreign investment in Russia, and also the fastest growing oil and gas company in Russia. We applied modern management, contemporary technology to some very good assets that were Declining under the Soviet Union's rule. So I met him at least once a quarter, and we had a standard agenda, which I went through to tell him how well we were doing, and he would always say, you must do more. <laughs> uh, and then we would have a discussion about who owned it. And I did a deal, a very important deal, uh, which said that BP owned 50% and the Russian partners owned 50%. And Mr. Putin always said, that'll never work. It'll blow up. And really, uh, it should be 51, 49. And I, Mr. Putin, want 51. And so, well, Mr. President, uh, I want the other way around. So that's why we're 50-50. And actually, it worked remarkably well, uh, now, given a,
1: all sorts of things. A number of people have, over the years have complained that it's very challenging to do business in Russia, that... The rule of law is not the same as it is in Europe or the United States, uh, that you can't rely on contracts, that there is a black market as well as an underground that makes business challenging there. You guys seem to have done pretty well there. What, why, how, first of all, how accurate are those descriptions? And second, why was BP able to succeed where lots of other companies were unable?
2: So, I think the description is accurate, but it changes over time. Mm-hmm. You know, so because Russia doesn't stand still either. Right. So, it gets better and worse depending. So, I, I think the most important thing about this sort of business that BP's in or any other company like that is you have to be sure you're wanted and you're doing something that the country really wants you to do. And so, that's what kept BP in the position that. It could do business the way it wanted to do it because Putin said, I see, I need a foreign investor. I need to demonstrate to the world that these people are doing good things. I'm growing. I'm modernizing. And BP did all those things. And as a result, we were able to, with scale, with the big scale that we had, and with our partners who were pretty good, mm-hmm. they're very good, uh, we were able to navigate a path which kept us in on the straight and narrow. Uh, and that's really what we did.
1: Do you, do you still have a good relationship with uh, Putin, or has everybody's interests move on, uh, moved on? They've all on?
2: moved on. I mean, I haven't seen Mr. Putin since I left BP. Uh,
1: and and, and what, what? He was by that point in time, he was president of Russia. Right? Yes, he was. Yes, I remember he. I first met him when he came to London.
2: Let's see, I think in late '99, when Yeltsin was the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we were all looking at Mr. Putin saying, this is a young and refreshing person mm-hmm. who talks about the rule of law and getting things done. And we thought this was terrific. Um, and actually, his first term, that's exactly what he did.
1: Quite, quite, quite interesting. Um, I wanted to bring up something you had said in an interview not too long ago uh, along the, uh, those lines, You mentioned you would like to see more scientists and engineers in top corporate and political positions. Explain your thinking behind that.
2: I would like to see them in these positions because they're trained in a way of thinking that is different from being trained in economics, let's say, or political science Mm -hmm. uh, or journalism. It's Mm -hmm. very different. Uh, It's a a very different way of looking at facts and building uh, theories and testing them. Uh, and very practical, too. Uh, engineers, after all, have to get things done, uh, and they work, and they have to get them done, and they have to work without beyond a shadow of a doubt. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't want to walk across a bridge which has a 50% probability of standing up. It's not a good idea. As
1: opposed uh, to the forecasts of the average economist may or may not correct. be remotely correct. Uh, you, you can't do that.
2: So uh, it's a different way of thinking. It's a practical way of doing things. And it's actually a very truthful approach. Uh, I think most uh, scientists and engineers are taught that in the end, you have to say, that you have to talk about the truth, you have to be fact-based, and you can't spin anything or add a layer of complexity to it so people can't quite understand it. In the end, because advance is about challenge, Mm. uh, and it's about challenge and testing, which is based on
1: facts and truth. So perhaps that explains why there are so few scientists and engineers as politicians. It's possible. It's possible. Without the spin, it becomes very much a um, challenge to get elected if you're telling the truth and telling people what they don't want to hear.
2: From time to time, I suppose that's called a technocratic politician. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, you know, for example, Italy's had a series of, uh, when they really get into a trouble, they have a, a technocratic prime minister. And Monti, for example, mm-hmm. uh, Mario Monti, worked pretty well, sort of sorted out a lot of stuff. Very unpopular, though, because he kept
1: talking about the truth. And I have to start with a quote of yours early in the book. Engineering is wrapped all around us like a protective and life-sustaining... Blanket. Explain.
2: Which is what I firmly believe, let me say. So I'd like to start a little bit back from there. Uh, uh, Everything you look at in the way that progress and civilization, civilization, Mm -hmm. progress of civilization of humanity, is based on engineering. Whether that's the flint axe, Mm -hmm. you know, hold a massively beautiful object in your hands was very important to begin to think about how you carve up uh, an animal Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, how you change the way you survive, through to looking at something which opens the imagination, like uh, the James Webb Telescope at Mm -hmm. uh, at Goddard Space Center. This is an amazing thing. We're going to fire it into space a million miles away from us, the so-called second Lagrangian point, Mm -hmm. and it's going to sit there, unfold like a piece of origami, 140 folds, and then it's going to look towards the beginning of time. Now, that's incredible. It just fires the imagination to think you could actually look towards the beginning of time. And you might actually see some planets on the way, you know, and they might actually tell you something about life. So I think I find that very exciting. That's about civilization. It's wrapping our mind. It's giving our mind uh, a blanket which allows it to think securely and imagine, which is what... Uh, human beings do, so I think engineering is the is the golden thread through everything. It protects us, of course, it does. It protects us from disease. You know, we all get healthier, we live longer. It protects us from poverty. You know, the world is getting richer, uh, less people living in 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 extreme poverty, uh, and actually, it protects us from violence as well. When I was writing this book, what, what I found fascinating was. The world has actually become less violent the more advanced the weaponry has become. Uh, and so that's a protective blanket. It's the engineering has allowed everyone to say, Okay, I get it. Uh if we start doing something, someone will do something to us. It's not necessarily mutually assured destruction. It's not
1: But uh, it's a deterrent for it's, sure. It's
2: mutually assured disturbance. Right. You know. Big, big disturbance. And that's what keeps us in equilibrium. And and engineering does all of that. And and remember, uh, it really is something about safety because I contend that engineering, engineers, have saved far more lives than all the physicians in the world.
1: Because of the ability to... Public health, Mm -hmm.
2: engineering molecules, engineering drugs, uh, go to a hospital, look at the kit. Look at the equipment, MRIs, CAT scans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what's in an intensive care ward, um, robotic surgery. You know which is sure. don't damage the nerves. You'd, you know the, much the, more precise or, than the much human Much more hands. precise. The knives that cut the flesh that immediately can detect whether they're close to a cancerous cell. So all of this is amazing stuff, and I, I, I love it. when I spoke to uh, Robert Langer at MIT. It's a great uh, inventor. He's called the Edison of medicine. Is his, uh,
1: <laughs> Is this the da Vinci machine?
2: No, he's the one that thinks of blood as a, a great chemical engineering experience and tries to get, uh, uh, get drugs to the place they should go rather than throughout the whole body. So rather than chemotherapy going through the whole body, mm-hmm. actually using the bloodstream to get something to an exact place. Uh, and I, I thought... His phrase was wonderful. He said, you know, my ambition is just to, is to reduce suffering, and that's what engineering allows me to do.
1: That, that's quite fascinating. You're, throughout the book, you, you reference uh, the reduction of things like not only war and crime, mm-hmm. um, but the increased longevity. reminded me a lot of S- Steven Pinker's book. The uh, Better Angels of Our Nature, or is it the other way around? Better Nature of Our Angels. Um, Better Angels of Our Nature, which talks about what the media doesn't, which is wherever you look, whether it's literacy or uh, childhood hunger or just come up with a list of markers of Mm. human progress, we've done really well over the past thousand years, certainly 500 years. I
2: agree. I mean, I took a very broad sweep. Mm-hmm. And I took also some things where today I would say to say that they're really good is controversial in many sectors of society. For example, oil and gas. For example, facial recognition. For example, uh, the social media and the issues to do with privacy. Uh, there are many good aspects to all this. There are also some bad ones. But it it raises the more general point that all engineering has Great intended consequences, they're mostly great, sure, but also unintended consequences. And the question is, how do you balance this? Uh, how, and that's been happening since people first made uh, a piece of kit uh, for anything, for sailing. So it, the, the balance is, is partly about rules and regulations, you know, don't use it for this, partly about education, you know, it's not right that engineers should say, let's do it because I can do it. Mm-hmm. I should stop for a moment and say, should I do it? Should I do it? And in corporations, that's, of course, the role of boards and leaders. Uh, but it's also about engineering itself. I think, you know, in, in my area, uh, energy, uh, I don't believe anyone purposefully decided to create uh, an unstable climate uh, by pumping CO2 into the atmosphere through burning hydrocarbons. What they wanted to do was to give people light, heat, and mobility.
1: Uh, Be- better than burning whale oil, as you whale mentioned oil, in the book.
2: Or, or wood, or cutting down forests, uh, but also giving people a, a very different, a modern way. So, but we've created a problem. Uh, and i been uh, on this point for almost a quarter century now, saying, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the oil and gas industries that's created this problem, and we need to fix it. And the way to fix it is not to stop engineering, is to apply more engineering to solving the problem. And actually, in this area, I would say that we have already all the engineering processes to stop pumping as much the CO2 into the atmosphere. And actually, even to clean up some of the CO two, uh, the problem is that the processes, the engineered products, are too expensive mm-hmm. until they are rolled out in
1: massive scale. Because is, isn't that a chicken and egg problem? Meaning, it, this is
2: where policy comes in.
1: So, in other words, policy has to push these yeah. these new engineered products. To the point where they become more economical. Exactly. So you can't
2: say, oh, well, we have to invent all the – you don't have to invent. We need to apply. And this is where engineering is very good because as you apply more and more, so the unit cost comes down. We know that for sure. So, But you need uh, a policy lever. Uh, my, my. When I look at all the policy levers, I say the biggest policy lever you need is a price on carbon, carbon taxes. Mm-hmm. You probably need other things as well. But it's got to be priced high enough so that people can actually do something to get it out of the system.
1: Hmm. Quite interesting. I very much like the way you structured the book via the chapters. Uh, The titles are Progress, Make, Think, Connect, Build, Energize, which we were just discussing, Move, Defend, Survive, Imagine. That that was really um, quite interesting. One of the things that really didn't get a lot of Um, pages was modern food and agriculture, which is really how we're going to support 8 billion people and keep them fed. What is it about agriculture that seems to be so different from the other technologies you discussed? Because clearly there's been tremendous progress in terms of yield per acre and how much a single farmer can produce. So, in choosing what to write about,
2: I only wrote about things that I'd been involved in, mm-hmm. and because uh, otherwise, I I can't actually write. I'm not uh, uh, I'm not someone writing a survey, so I'm writing about things I've been involved in, one way or another. You know, whether it's being on the board of Intel or uh, Daimler Benz, or whether it's being on the board of the Crick Institute biomedical research facility. Uh, It's all these sorts of things. So I I, I said, I've actually got to have some connectivity here. Mm -hmm. I used to be Norman Foster, the great architect's chairman at one stage when he was thinking of taking his company uh, public. Mm. Uh, So I've been involved in and out with all the things that I've been talking about, and I've never actually done anything in food production or agriculture. And so I said, there are plenty of people who will talk about that. Let me talk rather selectively because I get, as the author, I get to choose. Right. Uh, and I chose the things that I felt comfortable to talk about because I'd had some hands-on experience. I'd actually met the people. I'd been involved. Uh, and so it allowed
1: me to speak from the
2: first person.
1: Hmm, quite, quite interesting. I want to talk a little bit about a book you wrote in 2014, The Glass Closet. And that's only five years ago, but it seems like so much has changed in in half half a decade. In the book, you point out, coming out of the closet is good business. Explain what you meant by that.
2: Uh, What I meant was that when people can be themselves in a place of work, uh, they bring their whole selves to the work, Mm -hmm. uh, and they can feel included rather than separate and apart. And one of the things that I think every CEO knows in their heart and they know statistically is that if you can build teams where people really feel included, Mm -hmm. they actually go and work to the purpose of the firm. When people see people being excluded, it creates a lot of grit in the system. Mm -hmm. People don't actually give their whole selves. They say, well, I could be excluded too. So inclusion... Uh, is really uh, and part of inclusion is being yourself and coming out. I would say that that's not a piece of advice for everybody because you have to be situation uh, sensitive. Mm-hmm. So coming out in Uganda
1: would Roughly not, not I think,
2: be a good idea, no. or Saudi Arabia, you know, because it's against the law uh, or it's against norms with tremendous punishments sometimes death. Mm-hmm. So you have to be uh, sensible about this. But in, in the society of the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, most of uh, Europe, uh, then it's something that absolutely people can choose to do. And when they do it, almost certainly it produces a better result than staying in the closet.
1: So 2014 is when the book came out. In the United States... This was not the top of the agenda for then-President Barack Obama. In fact, he was not the most progressive person in terms of his views on on marriage equality. And I think it was then-Vice President Joe Biden who sort of accidentally forced the issue, and Obama stepped up, and the forecasts— of uh, uh, roiling society turned out to be completely wrong. It was very quickly accepted and wrecked. It's only five years ago, but it just seems like a given. What was the experience like in the UK? I know you worked on some legislation similar uh, to the U.S. Uh, Marriage Equality Act. It
2: it, it was the same. I remember, this book was published in 2014. It right. was actually written uh, in 2012 and 2013. Mm-hmm. So that was quite a bit of time ago. Uh, But I think uh, things have changed dramatically. So in the UK, uh, I sat through big debates in the House of Lords about marriage equality. I heard bigotry coming out loud and clear, you know, that gay people really make great uh, decorators and entertainers. And my best friend's a gay person, but I have them as a token pet. Uh, You know, I mean, the list went on and on and on. But actually, when it came to the vote, I think at that time it was the single largest turnout of lords in the House to vote. And it was overwhelmingly supported. I remember going through the lobby with some of the most important uh, Catholics in England. And someone said to me, one of them said, looked at me, a friend of mine said, I'm going to burn in hell for this, but we're going to get this done. <laughs> and I thought that was a wonderful statement to say, this is the right thing for the nation. Uh, and it really was. And I think it was a tremendous achievement uh, that changed attitudes uh, a long way. It loosened people up a bit, and and the Brits do need loosening
1: up occasionally. Just a touch. So, So here's the interesting thing in the United States— despite the legislation and despite a somewhat accepting society not a lot of chief executives are either gay or if they are gay out of the closet probably the best known ceo is going to be tim, tim? cook of of apple a giant company venture capitalist peter thiel came out um on uh, on uh, sort of dragged out of the closet i don't think he was treated fairly by some of the media uh, the CEO of Lloyd's of London in the UK not too long ago. She, she stepped down. Yeah. Um, what does it mean that there are some high-profile people who are LGBT as leaders of company? How, how significant is this?
2: Well, look, I, I think I want to go back to what happened when I was a student. When I was a student, uh, it was if you were gay and you actually had a sexual uh, encounter with a man, you'd go to prison. Really, uh, in '67, it was illegal in now, the UK. The law wow! Changed. The law I mean,
1: it was. By the way, lots of laws like that on the books yeah. in the United States.
2: So the law changed, and uh, absolutely. when when did in that change? In mm-hmm. '67, it was ten years after the so-called Wolfenden Report was put uh, before the House. It took ten years to persuade people to change the law, and when the law changed, nothing happened.
1: Uh, no, no, no difference. Th- no,
2: because uh, behaviour lags the law hugely, hugely.
1: And I think... Is, is that backwards? Behavior lags the law or the law lags actual behavior? Well,
2: both. So you change the law, the behavior that was established with the law mm-hmm. still stays in place and it takes ages for it to change, mm-hmm. in my view. I think law is important and necessary, but sure. not sufficient, obviously. So uh, I, I think people still, uh, there's a generation gap, Mm-hmm. I think there's also some other issues to do with boards of directors, probably quite conservative. Don't want to have too many what you might call floating variables around. Okay. You know, you want, to, you want to reduce your problem, as it were, to have a CEO that, you know, is just – has no peripheral – activity mm-hmm. that might possibly get in the way D-
1: of the company. D- does that help explain while why today there's still a very short list of CEOs I, I th- who are out? I think
2: it's A. It could be one reason. We don't know what the real reasons are. I think that might be one reason. Another one might be people self-selecting out, mm-hmm. possibly, saying, actually, I just don't want the profile. Uh, some uh, There may be some basic uh, hidden discrimination, uh, very possible. Uh, but it, you're right. I mean, there's a handful of CEOs who are openly gay in the S&P 500. Uh, Variably, I think, about maybe four or
1: so. Something like that, right. Uh,
2: but, you know, statistically, we should have 25 to 50. So something's wrong here. Either 2021 20, to 46 right. uh, CEOs are in the closet or something else is happening. So, uh, and, and, and that's worrying for the simple reason that it's so important to have role models out there. Otherwise, you don't encourage people. You can't say to people, well, you know, just come out. It'll be great. It'll be good for your career. And they say, well, that's very interesting, John. But show me where the CEOs are. Mm -hmm. Show me where they are. And so that's why this is a very important point.
1: So the question I have to ask you is while you were CEO of BP, not being public about your sexuality. How did that affect the way you went about your job? Not. It. it certainly affected it. I think what it did
2: is it, it 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 allowed me to focus only on my job at the exclusion of my self, basically my private life and developing mm-hmm. uh, who I really was. And I, I did that uh, partly because my thought process got stranded. I when I wrote this book, I. I, the story which always sticks with me is I went to the Hay Literary Festival to be interviewed about the glass closet. Mm-hmm. In the Q&A, a young man got up in the audience and said, I am in the same business as you for your competitor, Reed you know." Mm-hmm. And um, he said, here's the thing, John. Uh, we all knew you were gay before you came out. But the only thing was none of us were brave enough to come and tell you that. And I thought to myself, that explains everything. So I had, because I was a child of the 60s, because my mother was a survivor of the Holocaust and she reminded me, never tell anyone a secret because they'll surely use it against you Mm -hmm. and never become a member, an identifiable vocal member of a minority because when the going gets tough, the majority always hurt the minority. So on with those points, I said to myself, I'm going to stay in the closet forever. Uh, and so that's what I did. I ran a double life. Uh, you know, when I was young, it was kind of fun. You know, you <laughs> could, uh, but but as it, as I got more and more well-known, it became more and more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to go deeper and deeper into secrets. So, uh, and then eventually I got outed uh, for all the reasons I explain in the book. Uh, And it caused me, uh, I tell you what it did do, is it made me make some really bad judgments that I couldn't even believe I'd done myself about, you know, how to keep it all secret. I had a a relationship with an escort, Mm -hmm. uh, who I actually thought was a relationship. He was the guy who sold the story to the press, you know, sold it for money. Uh, I lied in in a witness statement, not in a unfortunately not in court, about how I'd met this guy because I couldn't bring myself to explain what it was. These things I don't do, uh, but the circumstances were such that they created some really bad judgments uh, in, in my mind. And I think I learned a lot about why it's so important, therefore, to be truthful and to be yourself. Because the moment you get into a situation where you are dissembling Everything starts going wrong, and that I think is a very—that's one of the reasons why it's so important. Whenever you possibly can to come out, you know, if if you're going to be hurt, if it's unsafe, don't do it. But but think about it hard.
1: The the glass closet was quite a brave book, especially considering uh, that was 2014, Mm -hmm. which is only five years ago. But it might as well have been. It might as well have been a lifetime ago. Any regrets about the book or you find it's freeing and you were happy you Not put all. it out? I
2: think a lot of people still want the book. They talk to me about the book. It's a topic which comes up again and again. Actually, when I'm signing my other books, I, I, we had this, I, I was signing the last book at Harvard, Mm-hmm. The bookstore.
1: That's second tier school, that, that or, right?
2: Second-tier. And some uh, a couple of guys came up and I uh, signed the books with them, and then they rather sheepishly pulled out a very dog eared <laughs> copy right. of the Glass Closet and said, "We've lent this to everyone." I said, "How dare you? You know, you've reduced my copies, royalties." <laughs> uh, but they said, uh, "Could you sign it, please? Because this is why we got married." Huh. And uh, you know, that's um, that's pretty good. Quite, quite. Uh, I think, if I may, I think one of the things to note why I think this book is so important is that things aren't always going forward they also go backwards Mm -hmm. and you look at some of the regular the uh, the behavior in Europe against gay people uh, it's beginning to switch with these right-wing parties coming in power Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of uh, reenactment of discrimination Hmm. and I think people need to be reminded that that's a place
1: we don't want to go to. So, when you were a CEO at BP, uh, an ad campaign was launched, Beyond Petroleum. Tell us a little bit about the thinking there and and how it was received. What did Beyond Petroleum mean for an oil company? So, it's worth going back a
2: little bit, Mm -hmm. before 2000, Uh, but by 1997, Uh, the BP, uh, my executive team and I, uh, we had concluded that uh, climate change was a real threat Mm -hmm. and we had to do something about it. So I stood up at Stanford University uh, at the Frost Auditorium and gave a speech uh, about climate change. And I said, climate change is happening. We are uh, responsible for this and we need to do something about it. And I laid out an action plan rather than just wringing my hands and saying it's a terrible problem. I said, we're going to do the following things, you know, trade carbon internally, invest in renewables, uh, invest in uh, alternative fuels and and measure what we were doing and seal up all the methane so we weren't leaking it Mm -hmm. because it's a bad greenhouse gas. Sure. So we did all that. Uh, It didn't go down well with the industry. I would say that's a British understatement. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, the American Petroleum Institute uh, said that uh, I had left the church, whatever that meant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I the did, church of? At the church of the API, I think. At the um, church of the
1: uh, petroleum industry. Okay. Uh, uh, well— and, and the question is, was it the church of the petroleum industry or the church of global warming denialism? Which I think it was that, where the oil industry was in large part.
2: Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, but then what had happened was we realized that we, we got such a huge support internally.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That it changed the way BP thought about itself, how it recruited, could get very different people coming in. And actually, we realized that we were thinking beyond petroleum. What mm-hmm. was going to happen beyond petroleum? So we decided that that was going to be our strapline, thinking about beyond petroleum. And it was kind of neat because BP, beyond sure. petroleum, it was all sort of worked together. And besides, we had to rebrand. By that time, uh, I'd uh, undertaken a whole variety of massive deals uh, you know, merging with Amaco, mm-hmm. uh, with Arco, with Castrol, with Weber—these were very big deals, and it changed dramatically BP. And we needed a new identity mm-hmm. because you know everyone came from somewhere else. I remember
1: so, the the Amaco deal was just giant.
2: It was the largest, uh, I think, financial transact, uh, industrial financial transaction ever at the time. Mm. Nowadays, because the numbers are right. telephone directories, it's it's peanuts. Right. But it was big and, of course, very complex because a lot of people, a lot of activities and operations and so forth. So we concluded that we may as well say what we were thinking, which is we were thinking beyond petroleum. Now, I, I think that we were – I think the error I made is I think it was too early. Uh, and uh, we, we took one step too far. We couldn't actually keep everyone – outs in the outside world with us in the inside world we kept everyone together couldn't quite get it uh, to gel
1: with within the company everybody was on the same Absolutely. page
2: well well mostly when you say everybody inside an organization 80/20 I, is the rule right you okay know, that's not, everybody that's 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 by far everybody it's slightly better than politics i think <laughs> okay. but it's not 100% zero right. by any means it's about 80/20 and what was interesting was uh, uh, the quality of people who joined the company suddenly changed. I mean, we got people coming to us rather than going to Palo Alto. So
1: you know? a competitive advantage was, by embracing. New... We got
2: we got some extraordinary people, and and these extraordinary people are now in pretty important positions, either in BP or
1: elsewhere. So so BP, but I think
2: it was a bit too early.
1: Mm-hmm. That uh, makes sense. Is it still too early? No. BP is is selling off some of its alternative energy businesses.
2: Well, they're reinvesting. So mm-hmm. they're
1: changing the portfolio.
2: I mean, I don't know in detail what they're doing, but they're one of several oil companies that are investing in startups in alternative energy or energy efficiency. Uh, they're investing in solar and wind and they're investing in alternative fuels things made of uh, biological matter, mm-hmm. rather than mineral oil from the ground. So they're doing that, a lot of people are doing this. Uh, I think uh, the oil industry has to focus on the technologies that really move the needle, and they're beginning to think how we can, how they can do that. One of the big technologies, of course, is the removal of carbon. If you, if, if you think about it, if we could make hydrocarbons free of carbon, we're left with hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And it's a tremendous fuel.
1: O- only powers the entire universe. O- other than that, it's… Uh, it's pretty good, really. Yeah.
2: It's got a proven track record, yes. as they say. So we, uh, we need to do that. And by burning hydrocarbons, you release CO2. So can you capture it and do something with it? That's called carbon capture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you either store it, so carbon capture and storage, carbon capture and use. You can use it. Now there needs to be a lot more work in this area. We know the engineering can work uh, and we know it can be done, but it needs policy instruments to make it worthwhile for corporations to do. So that if you put a price on carbon by taxing it, the more tax you avoid, the better off you are. So if you can store it, then all is good uh, and uh, you can then begin to make uh, carbon-free hydrocarbons now why on earth carbon
1: free hydrocarbons why on earth would
2: you want to do this the answer is it's very difficult to replace the hydrocarbons mm-hmm. uh, we can't do it with renewable energy we can't do it with alternative energy from sugarcane it, mm-hmm. it would destroy it have other unintended consequences uh, and you know while renewables and I've been a great proponent of renewables, When I left BP, I ran a private equity fund, the world's largest renewable energy private equity fund, three and a half billion dollars. Why can't we do it with renewables? The answer is because after all this work that's been going on so far, renewables at best provides 4% of the energy in the world, Mm -hmm. 4%. It's going to take a long time for it to replace uh, all the hydrocarbons Hydrocarbons are coal, oil, and natural
1: gas. Mm-hmm.
2: Coal will be the first to go, probably.
1: Practically gone already. Right? Not in the it, world. Well, it's in it's, the U.S.
2: in the U.S. But in, in India, fading fast. In the India, for example, it's mm-hmm.
1: expanding. And and China so also. China, using a lot.
2: China's a, a, a bit. It, it's moving. It's using a tremendous amount. It's I think it's it it, it shrank and then grew a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly in you know, in Europe, it's it's going out of the system, although Poland is still providing a lot of coal. And by unintended, uh, the unintended consequences of the German energy policy called Energiewende mm-hmm. uh, actually increased the amount of coal Germany used uh, for what was a policy designed to reduce CO2. They eliminated too many choices too quickly hmm. and relied too heavily on
1: renewables. Ge- Germany uses a lot of um, brown uh, wind coal. and a lot of solar. And, and brown coal. And and, like, and is there such a thing as clean coal, or is that no. an oxymoron? Clean, clean coal is coal with carbon capture and storage. Mm-hmm. You
2: can't clean it any other way. Right. Uh, co- coal burning it has other problems. It produces a variety of uh, very... Uh, Bad mineral uh, Sulfur, emissions, sure. as well as of particulate matter, mm-hmm. a soot, which can, uh, if it's, uh, which can cause lung disease. So, so, so it's not it's not very appealing, really.
1: So let's talk about the engineering um, that you referenced earlier. I'm under the impression that a lot of these technologies are still a major breakthrough away from going from four to four percent. To 40%. But but you also suggested that a lot of engineering solutions already exist. Yes. Um, so let's talk about that. What what engineering solutions exist today to reduce carbon emissions and help so, prevent climate change? So we, we know a lot about the improvement
2: in renewables. Mm-hmm. So the cost is coming down and the power is going up. Now, uh, we know that for wind. We know that for solar. And actually, in solar, there's probably one more very big uh, scientific breakthrough, which could make it even more interesting. It probably won't reduce the cost so much, but it will make each solar panel three or four times more powerful. Right. So we don't use so much space. Right. You know, so if you've had a roof of them you could produce much more electricity. You you have Uh, the
1: same issue with battery storage also. Needs another batteries.
2: Yes, we could do a lot with existing batteries. It's not ideal, but it would give us a good start. So lithium-ion batteries clearly can be used and are used at the Mm -hmm. moment uh, on industrial scales to store electricity. But electricity can be stored in different ways as well through making uh, the energy by using it to pump water up a hill mm-hmm. and then letting the water come down. We, I've seen uh, these robotic bricks yes, up and down. Yes,
1: the kinetic robotic Yes, that's it. creating towers of large cement blocks to
2: potential energy and then right. make it kinetic energy, <laughs> right? So, there's a Is lot- that a
1: viable storage solution?
2: Well, it, 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 people are experimenting with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some sensible people have invested in them, and so I think it might, you know, let's see if it works. There are plenty of these uh, technologies. So, But the main point, I think, is if we really push them out today, we're not dealing, in most cases, with breakthrough discoveries. We are looking at engineering improvements.
1: Incremental, incremental gains. Incremental
2: uh, <clears throat> engineering improvements, which usually come only with application. Mm-hmm. So the more you do, the better you become at mm-hmm. something, and the cost comes down, both on the manufactured base Mm-hmm. and on the implementation. So that but that's a rule of uh, that's a rule of engineering. I mean, I think it applies to virtually everything except for uh custom-built nuclear power plants which somehow seem to get more expensive the more you do right. rather than less. Although small-scale nuclear probably is the breakthrough that we all are looking for
1: small scale, and I keep reading about thorium reactors, which the science isn't quite there. It's but quite there. But you don't end up with all of that uh, highly radioactive waste, which certainly seems attractive. It it does. I think I would not uh, put all my
2: bets there. <laughs> I what I would what I what I do think is important is you know what's good for the navy is probably good for all of us. So small scale reactors. Uh, built in a factory as opposed to built on site mm-hmm. and come on the back of a truck and bolted together in a place where an old nuclear power plant was is probably a much cheaper way of going than building one from scratch.
1: So like aircraft carriers and submarines, that size we're they're talking about? Probably
2: a bit bigger, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not, not – I mean, they're quite not big, a lot some bigger. of those. Uh, but uh, but the, the idea is roughly the same. So 100 megawatts probably is the hmm. size.
1: And, and one of the things you mention, um, when, both in the book and when you discuss climate change, is you said you would love to be known as an engineer and a scientist. Explain your thinking there. Well, I would still I'd really love to
2: be known as an engineer, period. I mean, I, I do think engineers uh, uh, are the people who look both ways in life. They look to the fruits of discovery mm-hmm. from what happens in the lab, Uh, And they look at it and say, yes, we need to do something with it. And they look to the market, on the other hand, and to commerce and say, this is how we make it work for humanity. Uh, And, you know, I don't want to use one of the myriad apparent quotes from Edison, uh, but I think he said something similar about uh, discoveries with no market are not worth having. Uh, But Or he may not have said it, but... uh, uh but, but I do think that's why engineering is so important. It's jane's face. It looks two ways in, it looks two ways in one person and mm-hmm. creates something great for humanity. And I, I think that's a really good thing to do.
0: We when cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting, you can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. We have
1: been speaking with... John Brown, former CEO of British Petroleum and author of the new book, Make, Think, Imagine, Engineering, the Future of Civilization. I feel odd calling you John because you are a member of the House of Lords and and you've been knighted and you have all of these uh, British titles. I'm just a commoner here in the States, so... I guess I'll have to get used to calling you John. There are a couple of questions I didn't get to. Can okay, let me just, if I may. Go ahead. My
2: dear late father always said to me, he said, you know, whatever happens to you in the future, you were born John and you'll always be John. And he reminded me that, you know, he was a military man and worked for the government. He said people have very complicated titles, but actually they're exactly the same as anybody else and never forget it. Uh, he also told me, he said, when you go to a party, he said, uh, you know, in Britain, they all dress up with decorations, medals and things like mm-hmm. that. He said, go find the person who's wearing none of that. Chances are he's probably the prime minister. <laughs>
1: so uh, That's I funny. remember
2: that very well.
1: So we didn't get to talk about a book of yours that I thought was interesting. Seven elements that change the world. And you discuss iron and carbon and gold silver, uranium, titanium, and silicon. I shared with you earlier this week's Business Week about what they call the greatest organizational chart ever, the periodical table, and it's really quite a work. Every element in the uh, table of elements has has a story about that. Mm. But I have to ask about Seven Elements. That That is a very sciencey, material science sort of book. Tell us about what motivated that.
2: Well, I, I wanted to write a book about the elements that I'd been involved in and, and make it as interesting as I could, almost adventures in elements, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, and talk about you know how they appear for the good and for the bad uh, in, in the world and tell stories about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd been involved with the Kennecott Copper Corporation, which was uh, a big uh, gold and silver Mining operation, obviously with carbon, with silicon, with Intel. So again, it was uh, very much a hands-on experience, and I just wanted to make it exciting. And I was writing, I think, for a, a general audience who who never really thought about these things and thought that, you know, what are elements? Uh, I was I read a, a wonderful book, which which is very different, and I would never dream of aspire getting anywhere close to it. Primo Levi's book. Mm-hmm. On the periodic
1: table, what, what was it? Was the title?
2: Uh, it was called the periodic table, mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, Primo Levi's uh, ruminations on life
1: generally. So some of these are pretty obvious. <clears throat> Iron had a huge impact on on warfare a few thousand years ago. Carbon, obviously, anything with energy. Gold, uranium, silicon. I have to ask about. Titanium, why did you focus on titanium? Uh, it was
2: the wild card. I've been involved in uh, the mining of uh, uh, titanium, not least in Richardson's Bay in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it, it's one of these things which is everywhere, and nobody realizes it's everywhere. Cell phones? Toothpaste, There's a ton of titanium. Toothpaste, white shirts, mm-hmm. paint. Uh, it's everywhere because it's highly reflective, and it creates that whiteness that we all like. Mm-hmm. We love having you know, white rooms and white floors and white clothes. It's
1: it's strange.
2: It's a very much a twentieth, twenty-first
1: century thing. And and why silver? Since you have gold, what what made you include silver as well? Because silver has a uh, gold. Actually, you know, in the end, is something
2: you mine and then you put it back into a vault. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, li- a little bit of it is used for teeth and for jewelry.
1: Or at least it used to be used for teeth. I don't know I've if they're still
2: doing that. Not a lot, I guess. It's now ceramics and things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, silver, of course, was used for many other things because it's a reactive uh, element. Uh, and it was used for photography. Mm-hmm. And I used uh, silver and photography as the, the point of connection there and the image and how we're so used to that now. Of course, silver uh, silver halide is no longer used right. in photography. Well, it is by very few people producing beautiful results, let me say, but it's now all digital. But uh, silver has different rules.
1: Quite, quite fascinating. Um, there are two other things I, I have to get to which, which are fascinating. So you were still CEO, well, let me say it this way, you weren't, were not CEO when the Deepwater Horizon explosion took place uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. But you were CEO during the Texas City refinery explosion. That had to be a very trying experience. What, what was that period well, like? It
2: was Trying is an understatement. Uh, uh, this was a, 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 a terrible uh, industrial accident, a tragedy, uh, where 15 people lost their lives. Uh, and uh, many hundreds were injured in different degrees, some small, some bigger. Uh, and uh, I remember so well what, what happened, and uh, I was called, and someone said, as they always do with an emergency, we think something's happening. It's not quite right. right. Uh, you know, and actually, that's when people observed nine eleven; They weren't quite sure what was going right. on. You're never quite sure at the beginning, and I... Uh, uh, they, they rang me and said, there's been an explosion. And I said, I'm coming down. They said, hold on. So I got down uh, to Texas City uh, to find, uh, uh, and I went round, and there were 14 bodies recovered at the time. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen people so stunned. The, the workforce, I went round and spoke to the whole workforce. And as we were doing that, we recovered the 15th body, um, and that... That, I think, demonstrated that whatever this was, this was a human tragedy. Sure. And those are the people we needed to worry about, their friends, their relatives, and then what happened. So at the press conference, I remember being advised by everybody to say nothing. And I said, how can you possibly do that? Right. Uh, So I said, we're responsible, and we'll take care of this. But right now, we need to worry about the people who have been killed and the people who have been hurt. Uh, and so we worked diligently through this. Uh, and we solved it. And what, where money could make a difference, we did. We solved it very quickly. We we paid people appropriately, I believe, for uh, the terrible tragedy they were involved in. And it was our fault, you know. Uh, and so we, um, we learned a lesson. And I think the lesson I learned was you know, however you look at uh, a, a company, you should always look at its weakest link. Mm-hmm. You can't say it's about right. It's not about right when it comes to safety. And it was very clear that we hadn't integrated uh, this part of the company properly. Was, was the, this refinery it was part an of Amico. an acquisition? It was part of an Amoco mm-hmm. deal. But it could have been anywhere. Um, and uh, it wasn't integrated And it it actually had equipment in it that took too much skill to operate. Mm -hmm. You know, we should have had, and that was the problem. Too much skill and the person operating it probably didn't have enough skill. Mm -hmm. But that was probably an unrealistic uh, standard to apply. There needed to be more modern equipment and we should have known better. (laughs) So I think that was the the point. Uh, And it changed dramatically the way we thought about safety. It really did. We, we prided ourselves with, about safety, uh, keeping people safe. But what we hadn't really deeply got was the fact that all equipment becomes unsafe and must be looked at at all times to make sure it it get, stays safe. Uh, and that's what we learned. And I think it's what everybody now learns. It's It's the big lesson of
1: how you keep processes safe as well as people safe. Hmm, Quite interesting. So I have to ask one last question before I get to my favorite questions, which is, you're an engineer, you're a a large embracer of science and scientific methods. Today, there seems to be a deep distrust of science, whether it's anti-vaxxers or climate change denialists. There are even some flat earthers out there, which I'm astonished at. What are we to make of this rejection of science, which has given us all the benefits of, of the modern world? People don't
2: trust experts. They trust people like themselves. And if there are people around who have a big, loud voice, uh, then trust goes in the wrong direction.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We, we need to do more. Uh, it's, a, it's a banal statement, but it's true. We need to do more in education. We've got to get people always thinking that they need to test the facts. They need to test uh, and go and search for the best answer. Uh, and then I think we'll get some better appreciation of why science and engineering is, is so important. So education is very important. Uh, I think we should publicise more, uh, much more, about you know, how, the, how, how does engineering actually work? How does science actually create something? How do we know something's safe? Why, why is there the FDA there? You know, it was a great invention, right? The poison squad and all that sort of thing in the olden days, tremendous, to create trust. So we need to re-instill with people the purpose of these organizations, the purpose of standards. I think it requires a very big effort to do that. We've taken it for granted. And as a result, people have ignored it.
1: So... The profits of the book go to the John Brown Charitable Trust. Tell us what the trust focuses on and and the areas you're emphasizing.
2: So the trust started its life a long time ago uh, in honor of my mother to educate women at Cambridge who'd come from a broken human rights background, Mm -hmm. displaced people from former Yugoslavia, for example, um, Hungarians who were not... uh, Settled properly, uh, the list went on, but now it does education broadly. Uh, it tries to do the things nobody else will do. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm, I'm not going to compete with governments and with the sure. M- MacArthur Foundation and with you know the the Gates and people like that. But I can do things. I can fill gaps, uh, which we do, and then it supports the arts as well. Uh, so that's what it's doing. It's uh, building up its strength. Uh, I want it to be around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll probably it's got to outlive me. Of course it does. Uh, and uh, as a result, I've got some quite young trustees, which i much approve of. Uh, but it's 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 doing things that other people don't do. Uh, and that's, I think very important.
1: Quite, quite interesting. So I know I only have you for a few minutes uh, before you have to move on to your next uh, event. Let me ask you some of uh, our favorite questions. We ask all our guests. We'll start with an easy one. Tell us the first car you owned, year, make, and model. So the first car I owned was a Fiat Six Hundred. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was. It,
2: I bought it in nineteen sixty-six when I was eighteen. I think by that time it was already six years old, and it kind of blew up right. uh, when uh, on a trip to London. Uh, the engine block uh, crashed. So uh, it was a great car. It was very cheap. uh, And it was a great thrill at 18 to have your own car.
1: Tell us uh, who your early mentors are, who helped shape your career. So in BP, it was uh, uh,
2: the late and great uh, Dr. Frank Rickwood, uh, Mm -hmm. an Australian geologist. He joined BP, having been the head of the dean of geological sciences at the University of New South Wales. He's Australian. Mm -hmm. And he clearly was uh, a great influence in, you know, rigor. How do you do things rigorously? How do you actually understand to apply what you, the science and engineering to actual business problems? He was a great mentor. I think um, uh, Andy Grove, who was active on the board of Intel when I was there, also a great mentor I learned a lot from him on how do you actually really do strategy how do you think about competitors and what you do to survive you know only the paranoid survive mm-hmm.
1: and Andy taught me uh, absolutely that that was true so let's since you mentioned uh, Grove's book let's talk about books what are what are some of your favorite books what books had a big influence on you
2: so I have uh, so
1: many. I, I think I've... Re- by, by the way, this is the question people tell me. Keep asking people about books. I get great recommendations from your guests.
2: So, I, um, so I, over the summer, I read a lot of books, and, and two really stand out. The first is an English translation of a French book by Eric Villard called The Orders of the Day. It's a short book. And it starts on the 20th of February, 1933, mm-hmm. when National Socialism invited in the heads of all the German uh, big companies to offer them assistance in return for support. And the story develops from there. It's hair-raising. And it's very short and brilliantly read, written. Brilliantly written. I can't recommend it highly enough. Hmm. Orders of the
1: Day. By Eric
2: Viard, V-U-I-L-L-A-R-D. It won the Prix Goncourt in French in Mm -hmm. 2017. In in France, it's recently been translated. I I would expect it's a very well-written book. I would expect the French to be quite impenetrable unless you're a very good French reader. The other book, I have a friend of mine in Venice where I I, I live part-time, Italy, uh, uh, called Donna Leone. She she's a, a mystery writer, a detective story writer, and she's written the same. Uh, she's written about the same detective, Commissario Brunetti and his family. I think for twenty five or thirty years, one book a year. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, they never age, but everybody else does around them. <laughs> she recently wrote a book which became, in my mood, not no longer a detective story but a novel. Um, Called unto us, a son is given. Um, remarkable book, remarkable, worth I think reading for the simple reason that it's about human frailty mm-hmm. and about why loneliness really does get to people who cannot have a family and the consequences of that. It's a extraordinary book actually, quite extraordinary.
1: Hmm. And and this is a big issue both in the UK and the US the rise of loneliness, which some studies have found to be the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarette a day. Exactly,
2: uh, and it also leads to very bad judgments because there's nobody to bounce it off. Hmm. And you can always hire people to give you advice, but the moment you hire someone, you've hired them.
1: And the advice is not necessarily what you want. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. So
2: certainly the biggest failure inside uh, my professional life with BP was the Texas City uh, tragedy, mm-hmm. and I think it taught me a lot about uh, making sure that you 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 don't take things for granted, and you don't get carried away with necessarily what people are saying. You check, you double check uh, when it comes to things which are existential. Uh, and I th- I think that was uh, in my mind a, a very big failure, very big failure. I think the second big failure was the errors of judgment I made with uh, uh, before I was outed, uh, both in the way in which I uh, told a lie in a in a witness statement, and the mere fact that I I in order to hide away um, fell uh, hired an escort and thought it was a relationship could mm-hmm. possibly be. So uh, I, I think those things uh, were very big failures uh, of judgment, error, and I've learned a lot from them. Mm. I can think of plenty of others, but they're smaller.
1: What do you do uh, for fun when you're not reading or writing books? So I uh, I still
2: i have traveled for the whole of my life. You know, I was born outside the UK. I've spent my teenage years traveling. I think I was one of the first uh, jet set kids because mm-hmm. I was transported back to the UK from Iran uh, and Singapore to go to school. So uh, I still like going to places I haven't been to. I've been, They're a diminishing number. Right. Uh, but I also live in Venice, Italy, where I adore it. I find it's uh, it's, it's such an unlikely place. It's a floating city, very sensitive, uh, very extraordinary. People say killed by tourists. I don't agree. Uh, The tourists, they come in uh, and they leave. And in the morning and the evening, Venice is yours. Uh, And uh, and who who are we to say that people can't see what we enjoy? We can't do that. Hmm. Very much threatened by climate change. Very much threatened by climate change. There's a big barrage being built, a very complex piece of engineering, should hopefully be ready next year or the year after. So uh, I enjoy those sorts of things. I enjoy making sure my you know keeping fit, and uh, I enjoy. Uh, but most of all, I enjoy the arts. So I've been, you know, I've been deputy chairman of the British Museum, chairman of the Tate Galleries, and now I'm chairman of the Courtauld Institute of Art. I adore those activities. I adore the theatre. I'm chairman of a theatre group called the Donmar Warehouse Theatre. And I adore the opera. I always go to festivals like the Salzburg Festival, set up by, you know, not set up, but, but made, of course, the headlines when Carrion was alive. Uh, I saw some fantastic productions uh, over my life, and this particular this summer. So, and I enjoy people. I, uh, I always think, my uh, late mother always said to me, it's very important to uh, talk to people. And the best way to talk to people is invite them for dinner and
0: Mm -hmm. she said
2: and here's what you do number one it's most important to have the right people interesting people and a mix Uh, number two have a great table and by that make it look beautiful number three have great wine and number four maybe have some food Uh, she said in that order you can have a great time
1: that that sounds like some uh some good advice um, speaking of advice, if a recent college grad came to you and said they were considering a career in the energy industry, what sort of advice might you give them?
2: I would say go into the energy industry because there are so many challenges still still to be solved. We have to replace energy over the lifetime of a new graduate. Uh, you know, the energy mix will change dramatically. So it's a and it is of course the most important motor of civilization. Um, without energy, nothing can be done. I know people look at their uh, iPhone and say, gosh, it's all working in here. Actually, it's working in the cloud. And the cloud is tons and tons of hardware uh, using a vast amount of electricity. And so remember, that's what we need. And that's a very important part of civilization.
1: And and our final question: What is it that you know about the world of energy today that you wish you knew fifty years ago when you were first starting out?
2: Uh, the environmental impact. I wish I knew more about the environmental impact when I started. Uh, I, I could see a bit of it. I, I kept wondering why, you know, when I when I was working in Alaska, you could uh, you flew in by helicopter, and uh, or plane. And you could see tracing of the, on the uh, permafrost when it melted in the summer. Mm-hmm. And that was because people had just dragged equipment across the permafrost without protecting it. And in some cases, actually, it dynamited uh, uh, you know, bits of it. And so they've made big ponds. I was wondered why people did that. And I remember also learning a lot when um, you know the Translaska Pipeline System was not built for both environmental and native rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was only passed eventually with a lot of compromise in these areas, correct compromise, uh, with Spiro T. Agnew casting the vote in the Senate. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember that very well because uh, we were waiting around in uh, Anchorage, uh, Alaska, the North Slope, and in New York, waiting... uh, for approval to get to our business. And uh, at one point, there was almost no money to pay us. And wow. It was quite
1: interesting. Quite quite fascinating. Mm. Thank you so much, John, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Sir John Brown, former CEO of British Petroleum and author, most recently, of Make, Think, Imagine, Engineering the Future of Civilization. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the previous, let's call it 260 or so, such conversations we've had over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at at bloomberg.net. Go to Apple iTunes and give us a, a lovely review. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put together this podcast each week. My audio engineer this week is Nicholas Falco. My producer is Michael Boyle. Our project manager is Atika Valbrun. My head of research is Michael Batnick. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through, I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable
2: business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA,
0: and more. Summit advisors include Citi and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.